Trying to save your souls from damnation So if you down with the message Tune in every week It will lead you to the message that you seek Uh Shout out to everybody that's been watching. This is the Real Word Season 9, Episode 3. Shout out to all the supporters. You can follow us at the Real Word. You can Google us at the Real Word Ministries everywhere, and you will find who we are. I'm your host, Ricard Genoa. I'm here with. Introduce yourself. Um, I go by many names, but you can call me Caleb. That's me. All right, all right, all right. You want to tell people where you can find you at? Um, you can find me on Instagram at IamCKSmooth. You can find me on TikTok at IamCKSmooth. Um, pretty much it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have a very special guest in the building. Introduce yourself, first time on the platform. Hey guys, my name is Justin Ryan. And I'm a mental health advocate, a motivational speaker, and a life coach. Okay, okay. And you're also from? I'm from Canada. <laughs> you want to hear something funny? You're the third person that's been on the platform so far from Canada and that's advocating for mental health. So that seems to be a hot topic nowadays, especially um, with everything that's going on. We're living in a hypersensitive um, reality now, especially after COVID where a lot of people went through a lot of different hardships. A lot of things have changed. And so why, what made you become a mental health advocate? And tell us what a mental health advocate is according to you. Well, a mental health advocate according to me is someone that brings awareness, you know, understanding to those are those people that, you know, don't really know much about it. it uh, mental health can have such a stigma surrounding it because if you look at it, people will think, okay, so it's a mental illness, so, you know, maybe there's something wrong with that person. And when, when you get a label attached to you, you can start to feel down on yourself or you can start to feel embarrassed or scared. And, you know, you start to hide that from other people. So my goal is just to bring awareness um, around mental health and the struggles that people go through and how, you know, they can, they can hide from other people and then they can struggle on their own and, you know, when they don't really have to because you know, the World Health Organization says one out of ten people in this world struggle with mental illness. You know, one out of every five will have a mental health episode at some point in their life. But what I learned in mental health first aid is that five out of five people have mental health. And so is every single one of us has mental health, but we all have different traumas, different experiences, you know, different things that happen to us in our life that we go through and then we turn to coping mechanisms on how to deal with that. And you know, for guys like me, you know, I turned to drugs and alcohol and you know, other things. Um, porn was one of them that I, I turned to cope. And um, I hid for a very, very long time behind those things because I didn't know how to deal with it. And I was embarrassed. You know, I, I felt like less of a man because I was struggling. I knew that, you know, I was a, I was a smart guy. I got decent grades. I was athletic. People liked me. But I felt guilty and ashamed for feeling bad. So I felt bad for feeling bad. <laughs> That makes sense. So, growing up for me, um, I uh, I didn't know much about mental health back then, right? Like, I'm 38 years old tomorrow, and, and uh, what did I know about mental health 30 years ago? You know, we didn't really talk about it. People didn't really bring it up, right? You, you just go along with your day, and you suck it up. But I grew up with um, very low self-esteem, very low self-worth, very low self-confidence. 
And, you know, what did I do with those feelings? Well, you know, I, I took those insecurities and I always tried to be the funny man. You know, I tried to act out in front of people. I tried to be noticed by everybody. I tried to make everybody laugh. I feel that. <laughs> hey, look at me. I'm going to make you laugh. I feel that. You know, and then, you know, I would set myself up a lot. I was very immature and set myself up for jokes. And then all of a sudden, I would start to, you know, jump in on those jokes. And I'd start to make fun of myself. But the problem with that was, you know, I would start to believe it. Right? I mean, I started to believe those jokes about myself. And, you know, going through, through high, junior high, you know, I was a late bloomer. You know, so grade eight hits. Uh, I'm still four foot eleven. Um, everybody's voice starts to change. Everyone's starting to get big, and here's like here's me. You know, my not growing. My voice stays the same. And you know, I get on the phone and phone my buddy up, and his mom would answer and be like, "Hey, Kelvin, it's either Justin or a girl on the phone." <laughs> so I, I had a softer voice, man. And uh, I was like, "Well, I can hear you say that." You know, it's a little shot to the ego. But then, man, I, I would pray. I would pray to be bigger. I'd pray to be stronger. I'd pray to be faster. I'd essentially, I'd pray to hit puberty. And I didn't. You know, I didn't hit that until grade 11. So I had all those insecurities. So what I do with those insecurities, I, I grabbed a bag, metaphorical bag. I opened it up, and I put in that low self-esteem, low self-worth, low self-confidence, and I put it back on my back. You know, and then I started walking through school again. I walked through elementary, through junior high, high school, and... You know, I finally, I finally grew in high school, but I still had those those deep, deeply rooted beliefs about myself that, you know, I am worthless and, you know, I, I have low self-esteem, low self-confidence. And what did I do when those, when that bag got heavy? Well, I took that bag off and, you know, instead of unpacking the bag, I put in anger, you know, around 18 to 21, I started to put anger in there, depression, uh, drugs, alcohol, you know, eventually later in my life, suicide, suicidality, you know. Fill up that bag. Um, by the time I was 21 years old, I was uh, I was drinking, drinking a lot, drinking, drinking too much. You know, I didn't drink much in high school. It wasn't for me. Um, but when I got out of high school and I started to, you know, drink some more, I, I found what it was giving me. You know, it was giving me self-esteem, self-confidence, you know, self-worth. But what I didn't realize is that everything it started to give me you know, was fake. And everything is starting to take away from me and be very real. At 24 years old, I'm a full-blown alcoholic. And I believe there's two pivotal moments that stick out for me in my life that really put me on the trajectory where I went. And that was, I remember bartending downtown Vancouver. And a bartender came up to me and said, hey man, can I talk to you? I'm like, sure. Like, do you think you drink too much? Because I was out every single night. You know, every single night after bartending, I have my cash that I made that night and I go and spend it, right? But I was going out by myself, you know, going to see other bartenders that I knew. So, like, I was seeing people I knew, but they were working. So, I was essentially going out by myself to drink. And he recognized this and he's like, you think you drink too much? And I looked at him like, there's no way I drink too much. You know, I'm young. I like to have fun. I'm in this big, beautiful city. There's no way I drink too much. And then I did what I did every single night as I went out and I got as drunk as I could um, within power hour, power half hour, whatever you want to call it. And then I'd walk home and on the walk home, I'd phone up, dial a bottle so I could have more alcohol waiting for me when I got home. And, you know, that became my routine. Like, you know, people have their, their morning routines of gratitude journaling. Oh, my nightly routine was alcohol and eventually cocaine. You know, I remember walking across the Canby Street Bitch one time and after that guy said that to me, the thought came through my head. It says, Justin, do you drink too much? And I brushed it off. I'm like, there's no way. Uh-huh. In this big, beautiful city, I'm a bartender. Then all of a sudden, I took a couple more steps and a couple more steps. And thought rings through my head. Justin, are you an alcoholic? And I got this warm feeling like rush up through my whole body. And I said this word for word. There's no way you're an alcoholic. You, know, you go to work. You pay your bills. You're not a low life, and you're too smart to be an alcoholic. Well, I was so smart that later that same year, I graduated. I fell people from alcohol abuse to drug abuse. I did cocaine for the very first time, and I didn't remember the night. But uh, I phoned my buddy, and I'm like, hey, man, what happened last night? And he said, you did drugs last night. I'm like, no way. I wasn't against people 
doing them. That's their prerogative. But you know, it wasn't for me. I wasn't. I was kind of. I was against it for myself. But I did it. And all of a sudden, he said something to me that you probably shouldn't say to a person with my mindset. He said, "Man, you were funny last night." Right then and there, clicked. I have alcohol for confidence. I have drugs to be funny. You know, I got Michael Special Juice from Space Jam. I'm one shot of this, and I'm super for Justin. I tell you, I was the only one that thought I was super Justin. Mm. After uh, after I left Vancouver, not too long after that, I moved back home, and I started working at the managing the local nightclub. And you know, I had to get a ride home that night because I lost my license for drinking and driving. And on that way home, you know, me and my buddy started talking about the topic of depression. And this is 13 years ago, so what do I know about depression, okay? But I actually looked at him in the face during that conversation. I'm like, you know what, man? Depression? Depression is an excuse. Depression is for the weak. You got to man up. You got to go to work and you got to pay your bills. All right, then and there, I don't know why I said it. Uh, but looking back, I do know why I said it. It's because I still have that feeling of less than on the inside. And, you know, I started to look stronger on the outside than I was feeling on the inside. So at 24 years old, I was, uh, I had two major problems, substance abuse and my mental health. But at 24 years old, I'm ignoring two major problems in my life. I was ignoring my substance abuse and my mental health. Mm, that's deep. So let me stop you there and then we get back to your story, right? Caleb, I see you agree with a lot of things that he said. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Why is that? Explain that. Um, I agree with what he said in terms of that mental health is like not something that people just take for, you know, like it's it's a, it's a normal thing, you know. Um, people always seem to think that like you're supposed to be good all the time. Mm. Like people always put on the persona that you're supposed to be good all the time. Everything is okay. Just like he said when when he said with the depression, like oh, depression is just fake. You know, it's like you're supposed to man up, go to work, and that's 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 putting a persona. You know, because mm. not all the time everything is okay, and that's okay. Yeah. That's you know, right. and one thing I'm realizing currently about this current generation, I don't know if it's a if it's a phase or if it's a trend right now, but a lot of people lately been really tuning in to their mental health. I don't know if it's just a trend that's going on right now. If it is, I hope it it stays, you know, and it becomes like permanent, taking care of your mental health. Mm -hmm. And I'm really happy for that. That's what's happening right now. And I'm happy for it. And the fact that you're an advocate for it, it's even better. So I appreciate that. Keep doing that. Keep letting people know that, like, yo, taking care of your mental is important. Because if you think about it, to succeed in anything in life, you need to be good up here first. Yeah. You need to be good in your mental first because that's where it begins. You know, it's always a change of mindset. So if up there is scrambly, if up there is not straight, then it's going to be tough for you to, you know, keep pushing. Well, mental health is defined actually as your emotional, your psychological, and your social well-being. Mm -hmm. Right. So I like to call it your operating system because exactly. it's essentially what drives you. Yep. You know, it's your motivation, your inspiration, it controls your thoughts, your beliefs, and your actions. And if you don't have that all together, well, yeah. your operating system's not going to work very well. Exactly. So I take know. us through some of the advocacy work. Um, what are some of the roles that you play within that, and what are some of the things that you do to advocate for mental health? Well, you know, I was on I was on the part of the suicide prevention team there for a while from Salmon Arm. It's because it was predominantly women, right, um, advocating for you know suicide prevention, and that's it's kind of a scary thing because men don't like to come forward. And you know, I was I was small in high school, but now I'm six three, two thirty five, and I'm a, I'm a bigger guy, tattoos, and I don't look like that guy that would come forward and be like, hey, you know what, I'm sad, or hey, I struggle, or hey, it's okay to cry, right? So. You know, I jumped on, on with them there for a little bit, and I'm in. Uh, I was just checking out suicide stats the other day, and it's for every one woman that commits suicide, four men do it in the in the United States. Yep, it's crazy. And in Canada, it's seventy five percent men to women. Now that doesn't mean that women don't try as much. It's unfortunate that. It, it, men choose harsher 
harsher ways, unfortunately. And they're more, I guess, the six, it's a weird way of saying it, they're actually more successful at it, right? Mm-hmm. Because they choose those harsher ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was working with them for a little bit. That kind of got all mixed up because of COVID. But now, I, you know, I go around to schools and organizations and I speak on mental health. And when I speak, I take, I take my story and I attach what I learned through going to rehab, through mental health first aid, through working with Canadian Mental Health Association. So I, I tell my story, but I attach takeaways to it. Mm. And so when I'm talking about it, I give them valuable you know, takeaways, learning lessons, and how to implement that and coping mechanisms on how to you know, cope with their mental health. But I also talk about the importance of asking for help and how asking for help is a sign of strength and not weakness. Now, you look at any pro athlete, right? They got help. You know, you look at a singer, they got a singing coach. You know, if you go to school to be a doctor, you're getting help to be a doctor, right? You got to go through schooling. So, you know, there's no difference in asking for help to deal with your mental health. But like I said, there's, there can be that stigma that surrounds it. Where you don't want people to know, hey, you know what, that guy or that person, you know, because women feel the same way too. It's not just men that struggle. Mm-hmm. But that person doesn't have it all together, right? Because we, we, we want to walk around and be like, yeah, you know, I got this. I know what I'm doing. When you're up in your head, like, what am I doing? I have no idea, right? So I like to go around and, um, you know, I speak at schools, speak at organizations. I've done it for, um, mills, uh, I've done it for restaurants, I've done it for you know, minor hockey association, I've done it at schools, and I'm trying to get into um, speaking at, you know, up north, like for pipelines and the rigs where, you know, guys are at work for 12 hours a day, six days a week, you know, they might come home for one day or they do three weeks on, one week off, just really trying to branch out and hit whatever I can just to let people know that they're not alone in the world and that... Mm. Yeah, people, we're going to come right back with them. Um, in the meantime, while we do that, what did you think about that conversation so far? It's, it's really good. I love this conversation. I love talks about mental health. It's, it's, it's really a good thing that needs to be talked about right now. Um, to know that it's okay to not be okay. I'm going to keep saying it. It's okay to not be okay. That is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, and of course, believe it or not, believe it or not, I started taking therapy. Yeah. Real talk. And how has it been since you've been... It's, it's been calm. I'm on like my third session. Yeah. So she's still trying to, you know, diagnose me right now, but... Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, secret. She, she <laughs> diagnosed you. <right? laughs> since the second visit, they got to diagnose you. But, um, yeah, I suggest everybody get therapy, bro. Yeah. Every black man, specifically, should get therapy. Feel me? Because we don't come out much, so having one person... That's professional. Like it's cool to have a best friend that you could talk to, but you need somebody that's not biased. You, yeah. you need somebody that's gonna just be honest with you and keep you on a straight line. So I suggest therapy, please. It's very good for you. Mm. Yeah, I think I believe in the same thing. You know, um, I've done therapy in my life as well, and I was a psychotherapist for like a year and a half now. So that's why I give therapy as well. Um, I think mental health is very important. Um, I've been working in mental health facilities for the past six years, I would say. Um, I've worked in male facilities and female facilities where the people are mentally ill and chemically addicted. Generally, the chemical addiction comes with the mental illness because they're self-medicating. They're trying to balance out the chemical imbalance within their brain, um, but then they do that with illegal drugs, and sometimes that could cause psychosis. and even more um, like deeper mental illness like say for example they'll they'll have they have a term called revving um, sometimes they'll have like manic episodes where they'll go into a, a, a euphoric state where the world they'll, they'll have disillusions so the world doesn't even look the same to them anymore like wow. that happens a lot and I see how mental health of mental illness affects men and I see how it affects women with the men they get more aggressive I would say like more so aggressive they they want to fight each other all the time like and they always going back at it and then there's the other ones that's like more docile like like more calm like 
Like, and sometimes the medication does that to them. Like, sometimes the medication causes them to put on weight. Sometimes the medication gives them dry mouth. Sometimes the medication makes them, like, dumb out. I, I, I call it, like, like, like that almost. Um, in the female facilities, the yeah, you can say the females are violent sometimes, but they're more so violent when they're, like, like on certain chemicals, like, if they're drunk. But in regards to, like, how they are, like, when they have poor mental health, like, it's their ADLs that suffer more. Like, the way they take care of themselves, like, taking care of themselves when they're on their period, like, after they use the bathroom, like, how they get dressed, their hair, they're like a parent. So, like, you could see it more in the appearance of a woman versus a man. Okay. Yeah, well, one of the symptoms of depression is... Uh you know, you start, you stop taking care of yourself, essentially. Like, there, there'd be weeks, I'd be in my room, man. I probably didn't shower. I'd just laid up in my bed. Uh, I'd leave to go to the bathroom. But one of the symptoms, yeah, you stop taking care of yourself, you stop sharing, you stop eating correctly, or you just start overeating, right? And that's where the weight gain can come from. When people stop drug use, uh, you know, sugar, you know, when, you, when you're an addict and you stop drug use, if you stop, um, you know, alcohol abuse, when I stop alcohol, I, I crave sugar all the time. Oh, what you're, you're looking for is that dopamine hit, mm -hmm. right? So you, you look for sugar, is could be a dopamine hit. You can turn to porn, it can be a dopamine hit. You can turn to online shopping, you can turn to gambling, you can turn a lot to a lot of things, but that's why you see, like, with some addicts, that quit using, they, they, they put on a lot of weight. Um, when I was in Vancouver, there's a place called East Hastings, and that's where a lot of the homeless and the people that are that are addicts live. But you see that what's around there is pastry shops, uh, ice cream shops. <laughs> <laughs> they want the, the, the big ice cream, the big you know bowl of cereal, a donut. Oh, they get the munchies. That's <laughs> pretty crazy. Mm. It sounds crazy. So, let me ask you a question, right? Because for you to share this testimony, you share a lot of intimate details. What gave you the courage to share this intimate and personal part of your life with the world? Because you talk about um, crack addiction. You talk about going through mental health issues, you speak about um, all the things that you had to overcome. Like, where do you get the courage and strength to talk about these things? So, you know, I, uh, I'll, I'll, call it, I'll go back into the story and then I'll, show you, I'll tell you that's how I kind of like found my path. Mm -hmm. So at 24, you know, I moved back home and it took me four years before I eventually asked for help. Like four years of going down that beaten path of putting myself in a scary, a couple of scary situations where I had a gun pointed at my face a couple times. You know, I, I got beat up and finally went moved back home with my tail between my legs. And at 28, I finally, I finally reached out for help and said, "Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm depressed. You know, I, I, you know, I abuse substances. But when I asked for help, I didn't really realize that I would actually become suicidal." for six straight years and it's not like I wanted to die but when you struggle with your mental health you have this, this invisible pain it's like a, a cloak or a weighted blanket that's always on you and people ask me Justin what does that feel like and this is what I tell them imagine you know a friend in front of you is, is, or a loved one is choking and you can see what they're choking on and all you have to do to save them is just grab that piece and you pull it out but you, you keep reaching for it and you can't get it and you're sitting there choking and choking and all of a sudden, you just sit back and you feel useless, helpless, and hopeless. That's mm -hmm. what I felt like. Uh, around that time, two years later, or, you know, throughout that time, I met a girl, and we were on and off again. You know, we finally broke up because my substance abuse. But you know, we we kept in touch, and we hung out a couple times. And eventually, she came to me. And she's like, "Justin, I need to tell you something." I'm like, "What's going on?" She's like, "I'm pregnant." We shot the club up, Justin. <laughs> I said, like, you shot the club up? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. Since so he gave me a choice. So you can be in this you can be in this kid's life where you can, you know, I'm having a baby regardless, or you don't worry about it. I'm like, no, I don't know. 
but we get back together, right? I want to be a dad. It's never how I managed to be a dad, but as soon as I heard that, man, I was scared. I was like, man, I can't take care of myself. I was off work at that time. Uh, they actually asked me to take a leave of absence because I was, I was like, no shape to be at work around because I'm abusing alcohol. And uh, so one day I, I was driving and drinking and driving and I got in a car accident. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, I got to go to rehab, right? Like, I got to get better. I need to go to rehab. So it was about two months or three months left in the pregnancy. I go to rehab. I'm like, I need to get better for this kid. But honestly, I went with the wrong intentions. You know, I, I went with, I said it was to get better for this kid, but I went to get out of town because I was embarrassed, right? Where I'm a small town, 20,000 people. A lot of people know me. I'm like, I, I got to go. And when I was in rehab, I went to all my therapy sessions, but I literally ate six times a day. I, I trained twice a day, you know, got up 245 pounds, you know, getting strong. And when I first got out of rehab, the first thing I said was, I'm not done drinking forever. So I just spent 35 days away from my pregnant girlfriend and a house of 60 other men. Um, and I first thing I said was, I'm not done drinking forever. Well, you probably guess what happened. Now, one month later, have our son. Two months later, I'm hitting the bottle. Three months or six months after that, my girlfriend had probably made the toughest decision of her life, pick up my son and leave me at my lowest point. And you know what? I don't blame her. But that became an even bigger spiral for me, man. I was I went downhill. There was one night I woke up and uh, I had a knife in my bed, blood on the sheets, and my wrists were cut. I don't even remember doing it. Like, I'm very lucky. I remember the night before, like, I felt like it was the end. I was saying some weird stuff to my mother. And that happened, and I got scared. And, like, geez, what do I got to do? Well, I, you know, I, I wore, like, some wristbands. I wore my mom's cover-up, and I put it on there so nobody could see, because I was embarrassed. But I was grateful to be able to, I, I was grateful. Or I wasn't even grateful. I was just, I was confused, man. I was confused. Like, what would lead me to this point? But when you struggle with your mental health and you don't get help, it's, uh, it's, you can't regulate your emotions. I mean, I've been to over a hundred doctor's appointments. I've spent 77 days in rehab away from my family, you know, because I, I went to get a rehab. I've been to 45 addiction appointments. I've been to 19 psychologist appointments, 10 psychiatrist appointments. I've tried eight different medications and I, mm-hmm. I found that one why and that why I'm going to get to, but I asked for help. Were you ever diagnosed? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with clinical depression, mm-hmm. or major depression. Major depression. Uh, adrenaline anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, to where, you know, I actually have an algorithm of how many drinks I would have before I left my house. Because, uh, you know, just to be around friends, to play sports, just to feel comfortable. And then I was diagnosed with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactive disorder. Where I'd be in a conversation one on one, and, you know, my, my mind, my mind, my body's here, my mind's way over here. And then I forget what they say, and all of a sudden I get anxiety, and I start to drink, and I get depressed, and then it's just one, you know, one little tornado happening in my head that I'm trying to cope with alcohol. But when I asked for help, I wasn't accepting the help. You know, when I when I got one month, two months, three months sober, I look at somebody and be like, okay, if you're drinking, I can do it. I'm just as smart as you, or I feel happier, I stop taking my medication, I stop going to my counseling appointment, I don't need you, I can do this alone. So I refused the help that I was given. That I was I was asking for it, but I was refusing it basically. Now when me and my girlfriend broke up, uh, I could actually only see my son twice a week for four hours at a time. And I couldn't drive with him for a court order. And uh, I was very lucky that she would drive, drop him off for me. And you know, she dropped him off one day and I couldn't keep my thoughts together. I was, I was angry, I was confused, I was sad, I was, irritable, I was lonely, I was depressed, and I was suicidal, but I couldn't tell her that, because what if I told her that, and she told somebody else, and all of a sudden I can't see my son, mm-hmm. like, I can't let anybody know what I'm feeling, right, because I was scared, you know, I was scared that some of my son would get taken away from me, so I buried those thoughts down deep, and what does a two-year-old want to do when he sees his dad, well, he wants to play with daddy, but I couldn't, so I picked him up, and I took him to the store, and I got him some candy and big chips, and took him back home, put a movie on for him, and gave him that bag of chips, and gave him that bag of candy. And as he's sitting there distracted, I walked behind him, I started staring at the back of his head, and I started asking myself this question, and I asked myself every day for six straight years, and this is Justin, are you going to make it? 
you didn't make it to, you know, teach him how to ride a bike, to see him score his first goal in hockey, are you going to make it to see him graduate or, or even get married? And the answer, never really, every single time was no. I couldn't picture myself in his future. And that really became evident for me when I ended up in a hospital for the third time, second time in two weeks with alcohol poisoning. Wow. And as I was laid up in that bed, I was pasty white, I couldn't keep water down. And my hands were going numb, I had IVs in my arms. My ex brought down my son so I could see him. And I'll never forget the way he looked at me and what he said. He walked through those curtains, looked at me, looked at his mom, he looked at me, he looked at his mom again, and he said, Mommy, what's wrong with Daddy? Right then and there, man, I was like, I need to end this. I need to end this so this kid gets the father that he deserves, you know? Not a father that's going to be in the hospital and miss time with him because he's abusing drugs and alcohol. Not a father that's going to miss time with him because he's using but a father that's, you know, is going to raise him right, you know, that picks him up when he falls down. Or when he falls down, he puts his foot on him, holds him down a little bit, so he knows he's got a little bit longer before he catches his old man. Mm-hmm. But essentially, if a guy that's going to teach him the ways of life, and that wasn't me at that point. I said, you know what, if you just end this, your family don't understand. They don't want to see you struggling anymore. You know, my ex, she's smart, she's intelligent, she's beautiful, she's a big heart. So find a dad for him. And for that two-year-old, he won't even remember me. Right? So, why don't I just end it? But when you get into that mindset, you start to tell yourself what I believe is the world's biggest lie. And that is this world is better off without you. The truth is that this world is better off with you. And that I believe you're created on purpose for a purpose. Right? And that we all are purposes. We all have purpose. We are purpose. But this world needs you. You know, it needs your capabilities. It needs your possibilities. It needs your smile. Now, I was very lucky, and this is how I started to find, you know, what I wanted to do in life. Uh, at that time, I was trying to hit the gym and listen to motivational speaking. I was listening to guys like Inky Johnson, um, Trent Shelton, Eric Thomas, and Les Brown. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea who these guys were back then. I definitely know who they are now. Mm-hmm. But I was listening to these guys on YouTube, and, you know, they all had something in common. It was like, find your why. Mm-hmm. Right? So... I started to reframe my thoughts and be like, Justin, what's your why? And I started to look at the little boy again. And I'm like, you know what? Instead of trying to end it so he can have a better dad, I'm going to get better so I can be that dad. So if I can get better for him, I can get better for me. And if I get better for me, I can help other people. And a lot of people in your life are going to say, yeah, do it for yourself. And yeah, you should do it for yourself. But if you can't, you find your why. You grab a hold of it and you take it with you everywhere. Because I can tell you, every single person has a why. That why is you. But... The thing is, that when you find that wine, if somebody else, it always comes back on you, man. Because I got better for my kid, I got better for me, right? So, it, it it turned out to be better for me, and you know, I ended up going back to rehab again. You know, I was doing very well, and I got out being stronger than ever. But man, I hit that pink cloud again, hmm. and I had my son one night, and I said, "Mom, you need to take my kid." I didn't know, my mind was swirling. I didn't know what to do, and I but I knew like. Just the thought of having a drink calmed me down. So I gave my son and my mom, went and got some alcohol, and I started drinking again. And, you know, finally one day I woke up, it was January 4th, 2019, and I just, I didn't have my kid, I just quit my job, I had no money, and I'm sitting in my basement suite, and I'm looking around, and I'm uh, seeing my kid's toys in the corner, you know, seeing the pictures of me and him on, on my night on my nightstand, my TV stand, I'm, I'm looking where me and him sit to eat, and, I'm just looking around this room, I'm like, man, I'm not going to make it. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to be here. And I'm not going to make it. What am I going to do? Like, my kid's going to grow up without his biological dad. Finally, I, I called my mom because I was living in her basement suite, very lucky. She came, she came down, like, mom, you need to take me to the hospital. So with that, she took me to the hospital and, uh, you know, we, I went to a hospital room and that was the final day that I, my dad to my left of me, my mom in front of me, and counselor to the right, I finally said those words out loud that, hey, you know, I have a plan. And if I'm going to continue to feel like this, that plan is to end it. But being able to say those words out loud in front of those people that watched me throw my life away and they didn't understand why, you know, that took a, it took a big burden off my shoulders. And, you know, I was, I was lucky, you know, that the counselor let me go home that day. I didn't have to stay overnight or anything. But that was the day that 
that I became sober. And now, four years later, that's that's my sobriety date, January 4th, 2019. And uh, it's the day that I got to step into my purpose. You know, I got to step into my truth. And, you know, two weeks when I, I think it was two weeks out of there, out of the hospital, I finally went to to a school to speak. You know, I had a friend that said, hey, can you come speak to these kids? Right, because I, I had a, I chose a different path too. I did some things I'm not proud of. And um, I went and spoke to a school for troubled kids to talk about that. And the way they looked at me and engaged me and, uh, you know, you could feel it when you're speaking to them, it really, it really got to me. And I'm like, man, I need, to, I need to do this. I need to do this more. I need to share my journey. I need to show kids that there's more to life than, you know, drugs, alcohol. That, that, that stuff doesn't love you. Right? So, family love. So Justin, let me interrupt for a little bit right there, right? You said that you found your why. Caleb, what do you think about that statement, finding your why? Finding your why is literally the key to your motivation. That's your key to your drive. Besides your mind, the next thing is your why because your why is what gets you going when it gets tough. Mm. You feel me? For me, um, if I'm speaking honestly, my why is to make sure everybody around me is comfortable. So. I made a promise to all my boys that I'm going to get them to see the millions. Mm. You feel me? I made promises to my parents that they're going to live comfortably. Mm. feel me? So whenever I feel like I don't want to do something, I just got to remember, like, yeah, I'm not doing this only for me. You feel me? And even as crazy as this happened, because in December, mm. I, almost lost, I almost lost my wife. Because I was like, yo, I'm going to give up on my dream because I was going through something. So... I was like, I'm going to give up on my dreams. I'm going to give up on my life. It is what it is. And then the next day, when I did my morning devotional, literally, the devotional was like, don't give up on your dreams. So I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Thank you, God. That's what I needed to hear. Mm-hmm. And then I got back focused. So your why is very important to hitting your success, period. And we could say that there has been a lot of change. Like you have the new studio. You're pushing a lot of new content. Precisely, yes, sir. And... What brought on that change and that upgrade? Um, well, so the thing with your why is that if the vision is big enough, mm-hmm. people will naturally gravitate to it. So the fact that my why is to make sure everybody around me is comfortable, mm-hmm. the people around me started to feel that also. So whenever I bring out something or whenever I bring out the idea that's, that correlates to the why, mm-hmm. they also gravitate to it. So... It was um, a person on my team that was like, yo, because the studio needed to be done over anyway. Mm. So everybody came together to like, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. And we just push forward with it because mm. we know the why is bigger than all of us. Of course, of course. And I can relate to that. Um, me and Kamel, my co-host and my partner in this, like he was saying the same thing about the studio. He's like, yo, a new season coming up. We have to upgrade the studio. Let's do something sure. new. Let's add new colors. And it came out cool, I feel like. Yeah, it's very nice. Yeah, it's calm. It's calm. This is really nice. I'm awkward a lot. Yeah, thanks. So I just applied the different skills that I learned throughout the years, you know. Um, carpentry and painting that I learned from Lowe's, put a lot of things together, you know, brought some art, yeah. some leftover art that I have. You know, just put everything together. And it's another room. Like I always say, like, all of this was created in my basement back in 2016. Yeah. Um, it started off as an idea in my mind and to see how big it's grown over the years. It's crazy because it's also, <laughs> my studio is my, it's um one of the team members because he got married, so he moved out of his room. Mm-hmm. So he was the one that was like, yo, listen, we've been shooting the videos here, let's turn it into a legit studio. So I have two studios in one. Mm-hmm. I have one, it's like, the room is big enough, so it's like half of the studio, mm-hmm. half of the room is for the podcast, and the other half is for my reaction um, YouTube channel, so okay. it, it was, it was, you don't really need a lot, you just need to work with what you have. Yeah, and of course. That's all that really matters. Yeah, I remember when we first started, hmm? Yeah. Just Sorry, go ahead. Just need an idea. Yeah. That's exactly. And, and like you said, people to believe in it, like the more yeah. people to believe in a dream, the more it becomes a reality. Sure. If people could do it with a lie, why can't you do it with a truth? Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So you being from Vancouver, I know life is different from how life is for us growing up in, in America. And us growing up in America, we're from New York and Brooklyn. You and I were speaking about that earlier. And us being, you know, African-American, obviously, and you being Caucasian. Like, how did the different groups and cultures deal with mental health according to what you see in your country? Because you're from a different country than us. Well, so I'm, I'm actually from outside. So Vancouver is about five hours away from me, and that's a town of around, the surrounding area is about four million. I'm from a town of uh, 20,000 people, which is and it's predominantly white, Caucasian, mm -hmm. right? And uh, so you don't really see, you didn't see much the diversity around here. But when you move to Vancouver, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it, Richmond is, uh, is predominantly Asian, mm -hmm. and it's right, on, it's right on the water, quick, easy flight. Um, Surrey is uh, East Indian kind of descent there mm -hmm. um, to where you live in, if you're Caucasian and you live in Richmond or Surrey you're you're the minor I, I was the minority when I lived there so I moved there when I was about 21 and I came from you know a small town seminar and I moved there and I'm like holy it was a culture shock it was a change is mm -hmm. oh every culture is different it's still nice over there I'm guessing right yeah I got I got to meet I got to you know be invited into different cultures, and it it was pretty cool. It you know, um, to, but you see, you know, different aspects uh, going towards mental health. I don't. I think you know from what I've witnessed or what, what I've seen. I think in the Caucasian culture, it's more accepted mm. mental health. Yeah, why you say that? From when I. When I see, from what, just what I've experienced, and I, I could be way off, you know, from, you know, um, you know, the Middle East, it's it's more like, you know, go become a doctor, go get your grades high, kind of style like that. From what, from what <laughs> <Yeah>. I, <laughs> no, I'm just not understand. Lawyer, you know, kind of, uh, something like that. So what about the Asians? What do you see the Asians do? Same thing, kind of, kind of thing. But, you know, I didn't. I could be way off. So do you feel like other immigrants or subcultures put more pressure on their offspring to succeed because they come from the struggle more so? And then I guess the Caucasian, they have more access to resources and therefore they're able to obtain resources for mental health more often? Yeah, that could, that could definitely be a fact. I know... It was so weird because I hospitalized myself mm -hmm. and I got into a hospital room right away. Mm -hmm. I was talking with a lady from Canadian Mental Health and this lady set herself on fire. Mm -hmm. right? She's an addict, she's homeless, she's been known around the community. Mm -hmm. um, but she gets, it was hard for her to get help and then she was released. Now I don't know if that's just because she's known to doing stuff like that, but I, you know, what is it? And he was being a white man, you know? What was her, uh, what was her culture? Help. What was her race? I'm not sure. What do you mean? Uh, I don't know if she was white or, or anything. I just know it was a lady. So oh, you've never seen her before in your life? No, I've never seen her. To um, piggyback off what you're saying, um, and it's really not, you're not even far off at all that it is more accepted in um, the Caucasian culture because anytime you, talk, you think of therapy, they're like, oh, you know, you're doing some, you know, white people stuff. You feel me? And it, it's crazy. <laughs> it's, like, it's the truth. It's the truth. And, and that's also based on, um, that's also because of, you know, movies and TV shows. Anytime you see any therapy thing, you know, therapist, it's always one white guy laying on the couch back, you know, and while the therapist is there writing it. So it's and not you someone that could afford to see a therapist. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's crazy, but you're not, you're not very far from that. You're very like, yeah, and I can speak from a um, from a therapist's point of view. Um, when I was in private practice, I could say that there were you either had insurance or you paid cash, right? Mm -hmm. And the people that paid cash, you would have to negotiate a fee with them. Um, generally, they would tell us to negotiate at least a hundred dollars from them because the practice would get a portion of that money, and you as a therapist would get a portion of the money and the owner of the practice. Um, so we would settle around 100 to 150 per hour for someone paying cash.
And then for insurance, we would charge insurance an uptake of around three hundred dollars. Um, the insurance would come back and they'll say, No, we won't pay three fifteen, we'll pay two twenty five. Okay. So you get two twenty five out of insurance, a hundred from a person that's paying cash, which is still not bad, you know? Yeah. Um in two hours you make three hundred dollars. Still a lot of money. Um so I could say that through doing psychotherapy, I was able to get not only into the minds, but into the cultures and into the homes of people from different backgrounds because of the clients that I've had. Um, I've had East Indian individuals that were in um, arranged marriages that that fathers, that, that their whole entire family lived in one room so that their father could guard her virginity so she could be able to marry the rich into the rich family to save the rest of the family. Like, I've... I've been around people who's who are of Asian descent, whose family was in the Vietnam War, and that lived in a constant fear for their lives, so that would hide up until they went to America, and they had to continue hiding their identity so the Viet Cong don't find them and still kill them. Um, I've dealt with black cultures um, where people were having issues with their sexuality, like that seems to be one that goes through people a lot. Um, men that grew up without fathers or like women that are um, dealing with post-traumatic stress after giving birth, um, white women dealing with depression, um, men from other backgrounds dealing with mental health but that's trying to live in a masculine um, lifestyle. Like say for example they're dealing with mental health but trying to become a police officer at the same time. So these are things that affect all the cultures and one thing that I got from being within all these cultures is that family plays a big part in all the chaos that goes on in your life and in your mind. Mm -hmm. From the people that came before you to the people that's around you now to the people that's going to come after you and what the people before you or did and the people around you did to you is going to affect you and what you do and how you interact with people after that and for the rest of your life more or less. Like, within our subcultures, there's other cultures. Like, us, like, yeah, we're African-American. At the same time, we're Haitian. Within our culture, is even more because we're Haitian and we're overly religious being the Haitian culture. Mm -hmm. And so when they come to mental health, they're going to say, oh, it's devil possession. Mm -hmm. It's witchcraft. Um, it's because you got to pray. You got to read your Bible. This and that. They're going to give you some tea. They're going to say... You're possessed, someone did voodoo on you, <laughs> and for real, like, those are the different things that you got to deal with, and usually when you're young, they don't really talk about it, but as you get older, you start to understand, like, wow, I had a cousin that was massive depressive, that had massive depressive disorder, oh, I had a cousin that was schizophrenic, I had a cousin that was raped or molested, and they dealt with depression, and that's what they did this, oh, I had a friend the whole time, she was abused, I didn't know, she committed suicide, you know? And as life goes on, you find out those, you, you, you know, and then, okay. So, what closing thoughts, right? Um, Justin, we are so blessed and honored to have you on the platform today, and you shared so much. And we're blessed and honored to have Caleb on the show as well. And both of you guys have been advocating online a lot about social media, like, I mean, I said advocating a lot about <laughs> social media. Advocating a lot about mental health on social media. Um, especially of a, as of late, like we see a lot of young people, like they've been going through it, and for a while, like they've been hiding their feelings and emotions. And I guess now that they're in this period of feelings and emotions, they're able to show it. You mentioned something about growing up Haitian, um, and how a lot of us deal with trauma just from being in the Haitian household. Yeah. You wanna speak more on that a little bit? Um, I don't know. If he was to go. I don't know if you have any close last thoughts, and then I'll finish it off because I know the, the time on that's about to finish quick. No, Before hey, you know, I appreciate your time. And, uh, th thank you for having me on your show. And, you know, I, I, I'd love to hear your perspective, my friend. For sure. Okay, no problem. Um, okay, so growing up Haitian is, is, is um, I feel like they do it too late. Mm. They try to solve the problem too late because mm. when you're young, they tell you, you know, what are you crying about? Stop crying before I give you a reason to cry. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And you know, when you hear stuff like that, you're forced to like, you know, tough up yourself and, and, and not show too much emotion. And then when that happens to you, when you get older now, that's when they want you to speak. So I'm talking, I'm talking it because that's what I'm going through right now. Mm -hmm. When I was young, 
it was like, you know, stop showing no motion, men are, why are you taking so long to grow up, blah, blah, blah. But then now I'm older, my mom is like, oh, talk to me and and tell me what's wrong. You know, like, <laughs> I want you to, I want to be the first woman in your life before, you know, when you get married. Like, you should be telling your mother everything. But then, <laughs> when I was young, that was not what she was done. So it's like, it's too late to try to, you know, like, try to rectify everything that you did from before. So that in of itself is just already just stuff that we especially as men go through growing up in the Haitian community so it's it's tough and it's not even just me it's literally everybody you know and it's even tougher too on the females because like my best friend was saying as the pressure is even worse on the females growing up like the ladies growing up in the Haitian community because you're supposed to be on this straight fine line mm. you feel me and especially in the SDA mm. Haitian community it's just you're supposed to be on the straight fine line, you know. And life is not like that. And it's not. And it's these not. urges, these feelings. Exactly. You want to experiment. <laughs> experiment. And on top of that, they try so hard to shield you, not knowing that being so strict and shielding you is the reason why you're acting out and you're trying to do things sneaky and you're going around the bush. And it's just. But also, I think. The kids, they see the hypocrisy yeah. in a sense that, like, they know their parents' demons and then their parents come to church and behave in a totally different way yep. and it contradicts how they behave at home and it causes more trauma to them because they're living within multiple different realities and they have to behave a certain way. It's just like when you're young, you're like, don't say anything that goes on in the house outside, yep. Yep. you know? And then you find out later on that, that these kids are being touched, being molested, at church, at home, all different type of places, all these things that you hear later on that affected their behavior. You're like, this kid is bad. This kid doesn't listen. Why does this kid act like that? Mm-hmm. And you find out this is all the things that this kid went through. Yeah. And it's just it's just hard, man. You know, and it's, it's, it's crazy because now that we see our parents' demons, we don't want that trouble. <laughs> we don't want that kind of responsibility. So, which is why I'm saying, like, I'm so happy that this generation is actually taking the proper steps into taking care of their mental health because we notice that we do not have to carry our parents' burdens. You feel me? We do not have to do that. Because it's one thing also I realized that about my mom is she's a low-key people pleaser. Like, she's very heavily influenced by how people see her family instead of how she feels and how she really see her family mm-hmm. and that's one thing me and my cousin spoke about it's like yo like okay like why do you care so heavily about how people see you like as long as your family is gonna as long as you know you do the right thing that's supposed to you shouldn't be so focused on that but then it's like she's so hanged up on it and sometimes you know you can't change anybody because it's too late themselves you know so it's it's hard man it's hard because you're trying to one it's hard because you're trying to one find your own identity mm-hmm. while also battling your you know what you've been taught and from your parents side so it's it's really tough it's really tough yeah man and i agree with you I know growing up Haitian and growing up in the church, it was a lot. And sometimes it it was overwhelming. And I think that's why, unfortunately, some people leave. Like, they're like, I don't want to deal with this no more. Like, I'm good. And I guess they go live out to be who they feel they are, Mm -hmm. I could say. I don't know. You have to ask them. Yeah. (laughs) One thing I've I've been, I would say, I don't know if you read the book, um, Think Like a Monk by Jake Shetty. No, I don't. Oh, it's a really good book. I'm reading it right now. Um, like I said, I don't know. Have you read about it? Have you heard about it before, Justin? Um, I have it on Audible. Yeah. I haven't listened to it yet. Yeah, it's a pretty good book. I've been learning a lot about it. And one of the things that they mention is um, making sure that your your values is your values. For example, the monks, the reason why they're so happy is, you know, they have no beds. They have no possessions of themselves. They have one mirror. Mm-hmm. And that one mirror is used as a metaphor. So when Jay Shetty went to the monk, um, the, I forgot what they call it. But they had that one mirror, and they told them, they used it as a metaphor. They told them, okay, so look, how do you see the mirror right now? He's like, it's a lot of spider webs because they don't use it. So he was like, so all of these spider webs is the values of your parents and the values of society. Mm-hmm. He was like, so you have to be able to break out of that. That's when he wiped 
the spider webs and wipe the mirror and see who you truly are. You know, so I'm in the process of knowing right now that the values that I have are like values that I follow and not just values that my parents instilled in me or that society instilled in me to follow and I'm just doing it just to do it. So then at that point, you're still being a people pleaser. You know, you're trying to please your parents instead of living for who you are supposed to be. You know, and who, of course, God intends for you to be. And I think that's what life is, you know, being being able to figure out who you are during this journey, um, during the time that you're actually on earth. Yeah. Find out who, who you are and what your mission is and what your why is and what legacy you leave behind. So for us to close out, Justin, leave the people with a closing thought, please. And tell them where they can find you and everything else about you. Closing thought, all right, well... <laughs> You know, it doesn't matter, you know, black, white, Asian, Middle Eastern, we all struggle. There's one thing we know for certain, and that's you ain't getting out of here alive. And we are all stuck here together. We are all brothers and sisters, regardless of our race. So when you see somebody out there, you know, treat them with kindness, approach them, smile for them, open the door for them, say hi. And be kind. Be kind to everybody because everybody has a story. And everybody's story is unique and just as important. And if you are struggling, you know, you don't see light at the end of that tunnel. And you keep on walking. Because like they say, the sun always shines after the rain. And there's always the end of that tunnel. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Because right. asking for help is a sign of strength and not weakness. Uh, you can quote. find me. That's the quote. You can find me at com. Um, Instagram at, at Justin Bryant 19 TikTok Justin Inspiration. You know, email me uh, if you got anything out of this podcast. Just with your thoughts, maybe if you had an aha moment, you know, what what did you what do you want to talk about? Just let me know how what what you got out of this, and uh, you can email me at Justin at JustinBryan.com. Love to hear from you. You know, message me on. Instagram, uh, I'd love to hear from you, and uh, I'm very grateful for being on your podcast today, and very grateful to meet you too, there, Caleb. Thank and, you so much. And I wish you nothing but the best in the future, and I know you guys are gonna be doing big things. Thank you. Appreciate all right, it. All right, all right. Caleb, closing thoughts. Um, closing thoughts, like Justin said, that's the key right there. It's okay to ha- to ask for help. It's not a sign of weakness, but it's really strength. You feel me? And another thing I'll add on that is go to therapy, man. Like. Heal from your traumas. Heal from your traumas. Don't do it for just you, but do it for the people around you because believe it or not, you're still affecting them. So go to therapy, heal from your traumas, sit with yourself, ask yourself those hard questions, and it's going to be worth it at the end, I promise. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course, I guess you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at I am CK Smooth. I do um, men lifestyle content. So if that's with you, I give tips on everything lifestyle. So make sure you guys tune in. I, I, I. And for my closing thought, I'm going to use Justin's background that says be kind to yourself. Self-love is the first love and self-care as well. And if you love yourself, then you're able to love others as well. Um, so we will say peace and blessings to all of you. And, come, and we thank you all for coming here and spending time with us today on the Real World TV. Shout out to the Brick Network. We're on the Brick Network every Tuesday and Thursday at 12 at 1 a.m. and 4 p.m. We're also on Instagram at The Real World Ministries, Inc. on Instagram, The Real World Ministries, Inc. on Instagram, Facebook, The Real World Ministries, Inc. on Facebook, or The Real World TV on Facebook, or Facebook.com backslash The Real World 7, the number 7 like Mike Vick. Or you can check us out on YouTube at The Real World Ministries, Inc., The Real World Ministries, Inc., one word, or The Real World TV, one word, on YouTube. Or the Real Work Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Pandora, and SoundCloud. So check us out on there. Or just Google us, the Real Work Ministries. So we thank you all for watching. We thank you all for supporting. Justin, you want to pray for us? Let's close out. Sure. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to share our story, share our wisdom on such on social media, on platforms to give others, you know, hope and inspiration to, you know, find their why, find their purpose and leave and live a purposeful, meaningful life. Thank you for, you know, guiding me and showing me the way to, you know, building back my family because I am back together with the mother of my child and 
you blessed me with another another child through that and uh, bless everybody that's everyone's listening everybody in the world give them the strength to ask for help uh, in Jesus name we pray amen. Amen. Amen, amen amen thank you Justin thank you all for joining us tonight good night and God bless you yes sir it's a real world.